Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Friday, September the 2nd, 2022. And for those who are at least in North America, this is the beginning of the long Labor Day weekend. And I'm not only speaking with you, but my return guest today is Jim Bennett of <coughs> fairtax.org fame. And, uh, He's so accomplished and so interesting and so that I don't miss anything. I'd like to welcome Jim and invite him to begin by introducing himself. Well, thank you, John, so much for having me back. I'm Jim Bennett. I'm with Americans for Fair Taxation. I wear the hats of corporate secretary. I'm a member of the board and I'm also the grassroots coordinator. And I first heard about the fair tax when I was driving up the New Jersey Turnpike and I was listening to a radio interview and this fellow named Neil Bortz came on and I'd never heard of him, be, even though the rest of the country had, because Bortz was not in the New York, Philadelphia market, which was my media market. And he was talking about this thing called the fair tax. And I'd never heard of it, but I never had no idea that uh, there was a organized movement to print it uh, to uh, promote a national consumption tax, but I didn't need a lot of persuasion because I thought for many years that a sales tax was a more transparent, a more efficient way to collect taxes for the government that uh, was uh, less of an economic drag on the economy. Uh, it, it, would, it could be made fair and it would be unintrusive and uh, and it would be non-discriminatory because everybody pays the same tax. So when I heard about this, uh, I became had to get involved, and I reached out to the headquarters at the time, and uh, the rest is history. So uh, here I am, plugging the fair tax. And I had a very storied history. I might add, I would encourage anybody and everybody to go to the site fairtax.org. Uh, to learn a little more about this. I believe the fair tax is, in fact, uh, a bill that's been introduced. Is that H.R. 25? Yes, sir. In, in the Congress. So you can read that. But, you know, I say you can read it. Well, I mean, you actually could read this, okay? I, I mean, that, that that's what's so extraordinary about it from my point of view. Imagine having a tax code that somebody could understand. I mean, Jim, what doesn't that just seem to you to be like a fantasy or? It's 130 pages long, uh, wide margins, double spaced, and uh, it, it's in uh, about seven, it's in nine different chapters, and they're fairly easy to comprehend. Some of the chapters are transition provisions, so we're really down to seven, and uh, the tax uh, really is uh, something that someone could follow, and the administration of it is so simple, because uh, I don't, uh, well, Canada has 10 provinces, but the United States has 50 states. And in 45 of those states, we have sales taxes already. So the infrastructure is there. And uh, the bill provides that uh, if a state has its infrastructure uh, for collecting a sales tax, it can enter into an agreement with the federal government to uh, collect the tax for the federal government. So the, uh, the way the uh, the way it works is that the merchant collects a sales tax, keeps it in a trust fund, and for every dollar that the merchant remits timely to the state sales tax authority, uh, 
the merchant gets a quarter of a percent for his or her trouble. And likewise, the state sales tax authority gets a quarter of a percent for its trouble in timely collecting and remitting uh, tax income to the uh, uh, to the federal sales tax bureau, which is about one twentieth of the size uh, of the former IRS before we had this new uh, uh, in, inflation uh, inflation reduction act. So um, it's uh, unbelievably simple, and uh, everybody sees that uh, when. Uh, a wealthy person buys a yacht uh, in the United States. Uh, a wealthy person pays the tax on the yacht. So, and it's the wealthy people who buy the shiny new stuff. Now, uh, a lot of the criticism about a sales tax, which is a legitimate criticism, is that uh, is that sales taxes tend to be regressive, and they hurt uh, the uh, people at the bottom of the economic spectrum. And so we have three responses to that. First of all, uh, the pre-tax price of goods and services goes down because the uh, uh, the uh, in uh, the uh, uh, self-employment the the employment tax or the payroll tax comes out, uh, the corporate income tax comes out, and uh, businesses function much more efficiently because the compliance costs drop like a rock, and then, uh, in addition to those factors, the uh, bill provides for what we call a family consumption allowance, and that goes to every household in the United States whose members are lawful residents. So they would be either U.S. citizens or they would be uh, non-citizens who were properly in the United States. And uh, the purpose of this payment, and it comes from the Social Security Administration, by the way, because there is no more IRS. And the uh, purpose of this payment is to, uh, is to refund in advance the tax that that household pays on consumption of essentials up to the poverty level. So up to the poverty level, nobody in America who's lawfully in the United States pays a dime of tax and above the poverty level, everybody in the United States pays tax on consumption at the same rate. So uh, I don't see how it gets simpler than that. So it's really, uh, it's really like a standard deduction. It operates in the same way as the standard deduction under the current thing. Yes. Well, that, you know, that is, uh, that is very, very interesting. And I would be willing to bet, I mean, I, uh, find it very difficult, as I'm sure you do, to face up to actually looking at the proposed legislation that is the Inflation Reduction Act. But it's over 700 pages. That I do know. I think about 745 pages. So you can bet that the year proposed H.R. 25 and 131 pages takes up less place, is simpler to understand than probably the proposed tweaks of the tax code in this in this new thing, right? Absolutely, um, it's uh, it's very simple. If if you're a uh, consumer and you don't own a business, you no longer have a tax form to file. Uh, you pay tax when you go to the store and you buy something. You pay tax when you uh, pay your electric bill uh, or uh, when you go on a trip. But uh, the uh, paycheck that you get is yours without any deductions for 
Social Security or Medicare because that's funded out of this new tax. The, uh, by the way, the, uh, the tax revenue to Uncle Sam, uh, the federal government is the same as uh, what the federal government was getting under subtitles mm -hmm. A, B, and C of the internal revenue, today's internal revenue. Sorry, Jim, uh, A, B, and C. So subtitle A is the income tax, subtitle B yes. is the state and gift tax, and subtitle C is the employment, the, was that the employment? Yes, that's uh, self-employment oh, and self tax. Okay, so it's that 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 level of bureaucracy. All right, the, you know, this is, this is incredible stuff. I mean, do you, when we think about the amount of time, I have never, well, maybe I should be a little careful here before I say this. Not that I ever spent a lot of time looking, so I shouldn't say I've never seen. But it is incredible to me how much of what goes on in North America, the United States, Canada, what have you, has to do with compliance and taxes. It is it is absolutely extraordinary. With you know, the United States by far worse because of the number of more states and just generally generally more bureaucracy. But Jim. Uh, um, what do you think? I mean, would this be a transitional provision? Because you go to the fair tax, people have all this extra time on their hands all of a sudden, right? Would it yes. be a transitional provision to give them something to do with their new free time? Right? What, what, would, <laughs> what would an average American do if they didn't have to spend so much time filling out forms? Well, they could either uh, they could split it between work and leisure. I think I'm, that's an economist answer to the uh, to the question. But uh, in terms of transition of the tax itself, I think that that's also very interesting because uh, the 45 states already have uh, sales uh, cash registers that are programmed to collect tax. So all we need to do is to set up uh, Social Security uh, so that the uh, family consumption allowance could be administered and tell the populace that it has to sign up for it and they uh, and every household gets its, we call it in our jargon, prebate. They get the prebate at the beginning of the month so that they don't pay tax on essentials. At the store, uh, they pay tax, do we pay, they pay tax up front for, uh, uh, for, they pay for groceries, for rent, for all the essentials. And so we take care of the regressivity problem through this. But you're right, Americans would have, uh, they would, <clears throat> Individuals would certainly uh, save a lot of time gathering things for the accountants, and uh, they would save money by not having to pay accountants. Or in my case, I buy uh, accounting software. Mine happens to be TurboTax, and uh, I wouldn't have my uh, tax weekends uh, during the uh, during the year when I was working. Uh, I would have to spend about two or three weekends doing taxes, mm -hmm. and that was just for me. Well, and that, of course, it doesn't even begin to compare to what happens uh, with Americans abroad. But we'll get to that in a second. One of the things that I found very interesting about your description of this is I think you said, well, citizens, I think by that you mean residents, you know, who live in the United States, they pay this tax. Then I think you said something like visitors, people visiting would also pay the tax. In other words, anybody who, you know, buys something in the United States is going to is going to pay this tax. And that's another way of saying that this uh, the fair tax is really it's a form of territorial taxation, isn't it? Where, you know, the only activity that gets taxed is that what goes on in the in the country. Right. Precisely. And 
that's why American citizens living abroad should uh, get behind this. And even if it's typically 2% of a district's uh, electorate, uh, if you get a small percentage of the electorate that can get organized, uh, they, should, they should really get behind this tax because it's no more FATCA. Uh, there's no more uh, filling out uh, a U.S. tax return on top of the local tax return with uh, too often conflicting tax systems and exposing these people to the worst of both tax worlds. And uh, American citizens abroad, uh, many of them aren't even aware of the obligation to file a U.S. tax return, and they risk getting the silver bracelets put on them when they come through Kennedy Airport on a visit. So it's a uh, th this would this this would be gold uh, for any U.S. citizen living outside the borders of the United States. Well, it and it would be good. Well, and I mean, it'd be gold for any U.S. citizen or resident, wherever they happen to be. But the because it's a form of territorial tax, a tax is only economic activity in the United States. It means that all of the all of these problems that hit Americans abroad would, would no longer exist. But it is fascinating how, um, you know, I woke up this morning in my Twitter feed, I saw something about some international tax conference going on in Berlin next week. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, uh, I mean, all of those problems, right? All of this has to do with uh, the fact that we don't generally live in a world of territorial tax, where we have all these people in governments of one country trying to tax economic activity going on in other countries, you know, through individuals. I mean, that's the, the reason for, I think, 98% of the problems and the confusion here. So, I mean, why not get rid of it? I mean, wouldn't the United States uh, be pleased, you would think, to lead the way and in, in turning the country into what would be a magnet for economic activity? Absolutely. The United, United States is probably the biggest culprit in terms of exporting its tax laws. Oh, that, there isn't even a close second. That's right. Exactly. Uh, because the fair tax uh, taxes only sales that take place within the United States. So if a foreign tourist comes to New York and rents a hotel room, uh, that person pays the tax, and that tax goes to help uh, fund my Social Security and, uh, and also fund the general expenses of the government. But uh, if I'm an American citizen living in France and I buy things in France, uh, that's untaxed. If I buy something and if I buy some high priced item in France and I move back to the United States and I bring it with with me, then whatever the depreciated value of that item would be would would pay the tax. But as long as I'm in France or Germany, where I used to live, uh, I don't have to give second thought to the IRS. So I think it would be a uh, it is a territorial system of taxation. And uh, to your second uh, point, John, what happens when we uh, when uh, when the United States uh, has only a consumption tax, basically that takes away corporate and business income taxes because uh, business to business transactions are untaxed and exports are untaxed. So the United States uh, becomes the Cayman Islands. It becomes the Hong Kong. It becomes the uh, the uh, whatever the, ta the tax haven you want to name of the world. 
and uh, businesses flock to the United States to do business because it becomes the most uh, friendly environment in the world to do business. So, yeah, the uh, the United States, for two reasons, should uh, embrace the fair tax. Of course, uh, it would uh, make April 15th, which is tax day in the United States, just another nice spring day in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, economically, uh, it would uh, be what Steve Moore, who's now the Heritage Foundation, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, described as rocket fuel for the economy. Well, you know, this is so obviously true that one wonders why this has to even be described, although that was a good description. Why is there any resistance at all to this? I mean, it's like it's as though there are vested. It's as though people understand the tax code to be really about uh, compliance, fines, penalties, uh you know, the weaponization of it for political purposes, and all of these things would go away under under a fair tax system. They'd all go away, wouldn't they? Yes, we have the expression with the fair tax, once you understand it, you'll demand it. The resistance comes from uh, lobbyists, and uh, the interesting anecdote here is that when Leo Lindbeck, who uh, together with Jack Trotter uh, and Bob McNair uh, formed the uh, fair tax uh, uh, the fair tax movement first started uh, working on it. They hired lobbyists and they found that they were up against a lot of other money that was uh, had far greater resources than they do. And these guys were uh, people who sat on boards of Fortune 100 companies. And eventually they uh, told the lobbyists to go, uh, uh, thank you very much, but uh, we don't need your services anymore. And they started concentrating on grassroots development. Uh, because that was the only way to overcome the power of vested interest. Now, if you're a Fortune 500 corporation, uh, you kind of like the tax code uh, because uh, you have a corporate tax department, you have your lobbyists, and relative to other areas of the economy, you have a rather privileged perch. And if you can get a, if you can get a relative advantage over uh, somebody else through the tax code, then that helps you to grow your business and squeeze out competition. So um, I think the other uh, barrier to getting this passed is uh, uh, lack of uh, lack of knowledge. We're trying we're trying to get it out, and we're very thankful that you have us on as guests on your podcast because we think that helps get the word out. Um, and we also try to uh, do some one-on-one retail politics at street fairs and. Uh, other other public events, and uh, and then we have our uh, and and we have a couple uh, we have a couple of guys, uh, Bob Paxson and uh, um, Bob Scarborough who uh, yeah have I, a, I was on there I was on their uh, their show yeah oh excellent yeah yeah, yeah. No, so they they they, they get the word out yeah no they're very uh, they're very skilled at messaging and I think you know generally very very good interviewers. You know, the thing that strikes me about this is um, in the case of Americans abroad, you know, you constantly hear, well, you know, uh, some high percentage of them don't ever owe any tax. You know, it's just a compliance thing, filling this stuff out, right? Let's say it's 50%. I don't know what it is. But 
my understanding is, and I don't think we have to agree on the exact percentage, but that something like half of Americans don't end up actually paying any federal tax anyway under this, under the present system. Is that is that your understanding as well? That sounds about right. That was my case during the three years that I lived in Germany, uh, because at that time the foreign earned income uh, exemption was $25,000, which was pretty low. And right after I moved back to the United States, it went up to 75000 And now it's, I understand it's 112, but whatever it is, um, a lot of that gets rid of the tax obligation for a lot of people. And then you have the foreign tax credit that you have to yeah. sit down and calculate. And uh, that was a um, what but, about within the United States, leaving aside Americans abroad for a minute? Uh, is it true that, as I've heard, that, you know, roughly half of resident Americans, uh, you know, when they file their 1040, what have you, don't owe any federal tax? Is that is that your understanding? That's my understanding, too, John. I think a lot of and that uh, tends to be a problem because if uh, people don't have a stake in the game, they don't have any interest in trying to revise the tax code. Well, I think I think that's true, but it, it also means that it is possible that, uh, you know, I mean, different people have different views of this, but it seems to me that one thing about the fair tax is that, you know, it kind of uh, makes it so that everybody has to pay some tax. Exactly. Um, they get, if, if you only... Uh, consume at the poverty level, you get the tax, federal tax back. But yes, everybody has a skin in the game with the fair tax, which um, with the income tax, I uh, in the office I was in where we had clerical personnel, many of them saw the uh, IRS a, as a bank. And on April 15th, they were before they filed their income tax return and they got a refund, not realizing it was their own money. And that, I think, goes to the psychology of it, that a lot of people, if you say IRS, uh, they'll say, well, um, that's, I don't, uh, it's not something that stirs up uh, enmity uh, in them, because uh, as far as they're concerned, um, the tax gets withheld, they don't see it in the paycheck, they don't really have investments. And uh, at the beginning of the year, they file for a refund and back the money comes. So that could be, you've probably identified another reason why um, the fair tax hasn't uh, caught on as much as it should. Well, I think, you know, your operative words are as much as it should. I mean, I fully understand that there, you know, as I think a significant group of people out there who would not want this precisely because they're not paying tax under the current system, right? Mm -hmm. Or, or any of another reasons. I mean, you know, the, the complexity uh, can be used either for or against people, I guess, depending on their circumstances. But let me, let's explore this for a minute. Um, you know, this so-called Inflation Reduction Act, the lesson here being you never pay attention to the title of a bill. But anyway, uh, I, I can't see what it has to do with that, but that's another podcast. Um, there is agreement that... Uh, they're making financial provision to hire some, which this can be right. 80,000 IRS additional IRS agents. Is that your understanding? That's the number I heard. I, I think the, 
But I can tell you that, which is a solid fact, is that the enforcement budget is going to go up 69%, uh, huh. 70% more in enforcement. So um, if you take the 87,000, let, let's just take, let's just play with that figure for a minute. minute. Now, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's fiction. Maybe it's not. You're going to get a, a lot more IRS agents, which everybody can agree with. Um, I took a look at how many billionaires there are in the United States because they're supposed to be the target of these. Yeah, you're not one of them, are you? There's about 700, 724 is the number I was given. So if you divide 87,000 by 724, you get 120 IRS agents for every billionaire. Cool. <laughs> now, you can have a getaway weekend with their entourage of IRS agents. Of course. Yeah, they'll. Uh, so uh, the fact is that you're going to run out of billionaires to go after. And so you have to go down to the next level. And uh, you know that the IRS uh, has a reputation for taking aggressive positions. Uh, and uh, most people, you know, that the billionaires are going to give them pushback and they're going to be very careful about how they order their affairs. So you're not going to get. Uh, so despite the. Uh, popular outcry, uh, I would say something that has more emotional appeal than factual uh, uh, substance behind it, you're not going to get a lot, collect a lot more money from the billionaires. So where's the IRS going to uh, train its guns? It's going to go down to people who don't have the resources to push back. And you're going to, and that that's where the money's going to come from. And then of course, there's a question of uh, how much you spend on collection and how much that brings in. Maybe it's 25%. I don't know. That that was some kind of an estimate I saw bandied about. But uh, it's not a very efficient way to collect taxes. And uh, that brings me back to another point on efficiency. The uh, sales taxes are much more efficient to collect uh, than income taxes because your collection points go down. And if you have a lot more people uh, uh, collecting the tax, um, we think that uh, the evasion rate uh, under the fair tax would uh, be about uh, maybe maybe five percent of what it is today. We know that the collection points will be about twenty percent of what they are today. So it's a very um, very very difficult tax to avoid, particularly in a world that's you know rapidly moving away from cash. Right? Very exactly. Difficult. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, is there any way to construe this sort of bump up in IRS enforcement? Is there any way to construe this other than uh, there's going to be a lot more attention paid to people with any degree of complexity in their returns? I suppose uh, uh, I suppose they will pay attention with uh, to, uh, people with. Uh, some degree of complexity, but uh, the uh, low-hanging fruit, obviously, is going to be the people who aren't able to push back as easily as those who have the means and the resources to hire tax attorneys and accountants. In other words, today I have good news and bad news. The bad news is you're being shaken down by the IRS. The good news is that you can end it by paying quickly. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. This is a real, this is a real problem. There is a predictably 
uh, and this has already started in the media, uh, there's a lot of sort of scaremongering out there, particularly in relation to the whole Americans abroad thing. And I don't, you know, I think my own thoughts on this, that it's uh, could not be construed as a good situation, but I think it's far too early to, you know, to see how this whole thing is going to unfold. But, you know, Jim, one of the, one of the, the, the other things here, right, if you transition to the fair tax, I mean, sure, we're getting out of the bureaucracy, the complexity, you know, all these forms, et cetera. But it also seems to me in a general sense that you're removing a lot of the social engineering from the tax code. Would you agree with that? In other words, that, you're trying to be pure. This is about taxation. This is about how we raise revenue you know, to pay our bills. We're not going to use the tax system anymore to reward people we do like, punish people we don't like. You know, you're no longer able to weaponize it by, you know, inflicting audits on people and stuff like that. Isn't that, an also, isn't that also a byproduct of this kind of change? Yeah, John, you're absolutely right. It'll be a lot harder to weaponize the tax system. Uh, the, the transition is very quick um, because the funding for the IRS, uh, once you go on day one, when you go over to the fair tax, the IRS funding fades out over three years uh, because the uh, IRS stays funded to uh, keep open open cases and to calculate Social Security benefits. But then the IRS goes away. And um, let's uh, and then uh, let, let let's take an example. Let's say that uh, there's a lobbying group that comes in and just to use something that's ridiculous, uh, they sell green eggs and they get Congress to agree that we're going to exempt green eggs on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And uh, so there's a shortfall in the revenue that comes into the, into the government. Well, first of all, uh, Uncle Sam is going to have to raise the tax rate, which is currently 23% tax inclusive, uh, to a higher rate in order to make up for the shortfall or borrow money or whatever it is. And once the government raises the tax rate, Guess what happens? Everybody sees it because everybody's a consumer. So I go buy my latte every morning at Starbucks and I see that the cost has gone up and the legislation requires uh, Starbucks to give me a receipt uh, showing the tax, uh, showing the cost of the good and both together. And I can see that the reason my uh, latte went up was because there's been a tax rate increase. And that might just might uh, cause me to think that, well, maybe the government spends too much money. And if we can get the budget down, then maybe the government would uh, be able to get by at a lower tax rate. Mm -hmm. So it's fairly simple. Well, maybe that's what people don't like about it. I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think that so much of the culture of taxation generally, but particularly income taxation, just thrives on uncertainty, people not even understanding what's expected of them, right? Uh, no way of telling, no way of telling at all if the tax that, you know, shows up you're owing after you complete the return, you know, so to speak, is right, is it wrong, you know, try filing it another way, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And I really... You know, the thing that when it's all said and done that I feel 
personally most strongly about when it comes to taxation is that people ought to be able to understand how the tax system works, how much they're paying and why. I really believe that. And I suspect that there's a huge, huge lobby group, what have you, who really want to keep as much uncertainty in the system as possible. What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, sure. Uh, because the more obfuscated the system is, the more uh, people can manipulate it. And that, that's, a, that's a problem with the fair tax, because with the fair tax, everything is so glaringly simple that uh, when somebody does try to manipulate it, uh, people see it uh, because everybody's a consumer. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. The psychology of taxation is that a lot of uh, a lot of people just uh, just don't understand it, and they they give up the ghost in terms of uh, trying to uh, uh, trying to understand it. And if you have a consumption tax, um, maybe certain. When certain uh, people on the left hear about it, they uh, have a knee-jerk reaction to it until they understand that uh, there, we do have provisions to make this particular consumption tax fair. But yeah, I think the problem, uh, probably the, the problem with taxation is that uh, I think uh, a lot of people uh, don't or they can't take the time to really really comprehend it and they just leave it to somebody else and say uh, think that that's something that's always going to be there well it obviously doesn't always have to be there because it obviously wasn't always there yeah i mean this you know this nightmare has grown over you know over a long period of time and it is a nightmare i think that you know you and i have taught reference i think charles adams before you know, it's great work to, you know, decline, fall, rise and fall of civilization, taxation, this sort of stuff. And, you know, as it stands, I mean, I think that when the history of the United States is written, I think that its tax policies are going to play a big, big role in the description of it. I mean, it's just so, I mean, the only thing that can be said to redeem it in its unfairness is that it's unfair to almost everybody, <laughs> except for, you know, I suppose a small group of wealthy people just because at present there aren't wealth taxes. But, you know, going to for a minute to the, um, you know, the whole notion of, uh, first of all, uh, a tax system where you're taxing foreign income and concerned with things that go on outside the United States, coupled with uh, uncertainty and not really understanding Somehow, those two things together remind me of this Bittner case that's being heard by the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, my God, isn't that a poster child for those two principles? What do you what do you think about that? Maybe if you want to describe your understanding of what the issue is there. It really is, uh, John. And I just got finished reading the petition for a writ of certiorari. And uh, for your audience, what that means is that the Supreme Court doesn't have to hear every case presented to it. Uh, and the Supreme Court gets to pick and choose what cases it wants to hear. And the people who want their cases here file this petition. And if the petition, petition is granted, then uh, they get to go to Washington and after they file briefs and argue their case. So uh, this is a real, this is an interesting story. Mr. Alexandru Bittner, uh, 
was born in Romania and he came to the United States as a child. And uh, he became a naturalized U.S. citizen. And when the Iron Curtain fell and Romania became a uh, non-communist country, he decided to go back there and make his fortune. And he did, he did well. Uh, and obviously he did very well uh, over 20 years. And uh, during this time, he was unaware that uh, he had to file an income tax return or file a report of a foreign bank account, uh, which you'll find on Schedule B of your tax return. So uh, after 20 years, Mr. Bittner uh, returned to the United States and became aware somehow of his obligation to file the tax return and to file a report of foreign bank accounts. And he got an accountant and uh, filed all the back reports late. And this is a, uh, the, this validates the uh, saying that uh, no good deed goes unpunished because the maximum fine, and it's a civil penalty, it's not criminal, for failing to file a report of foreign bank accounts timely is $10,000. Now, the question before the court is whether the $10,000 applies to the report as a whole, where you can list all your bank accounts, or whether, the, uh, whether, it, uh, whether it applies to each bank account that you failed to list in a, uh, in a report. And that made a big difference to Mr. Bittner because if you take the maximum penalty, which of course the IRS insisted on, even though this guy came forward, uh, he failed to file for five years. And so multiply that by $10,000 and that's a $50,000 fine. Uh, the problem is uh, the IRS said that there were 272 violations <clears throat> resulting in a fine of $2.72 million and the Based IRS. On 272 uh, separate accounts, right? Based on separate accounts. Based on separate accounts. Yeah. Uh, I divided that out. So he must have had an average of 54.4 accounts each year. Um, and uh, some of those were his personal accounts. Some of those were in corporations and legal entities that he controlled. So, um, the IRS brought, uh, entered a judgment in federal court in Texas on, uh, on its assessment of $2.72 million. And uh, that's where the litigation started. Now, uh, what happened is the uh, district court, uh, which is the trial level, agreed with Mr. Bittner that the $10,000 applies per report where you can list as many accounts as you want to on the report. <clears throat> the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans reversed the district court and said, oh, no, uh, the fine is $2.72 million. Now, what's interesting about this is we've had the uh, we had the reverse take place in California with another taxpayer where uh, the district court said, oh, no, that's per report. So that limits the amount of the fine. And then the uh, no, no, uh, uh, the uh, the district court uh, ruled in favor of the IRS. And then it went up to the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco that said, no, it's per report. So now you have a, a difference of 
uh, uh, different uh, inconsistent rulings in two different uh, geographic circuits in the United States. And so that's, um, so uh, the problem is that uh, if you happen to live in California, uh, you get a good ruling on that. If you happen to live in Texas, uh, you're, uh, un, uh, you, uh, you're, uh, uh, the, uh, the the result is un, rather a little bit unfortunate. So Mr. Bittner has filed a what we call a petition for the writ of certiorari, asking the court to hear the case, and that was granted. And that's uh, the hearing is there's going to be a hearing in sometime in November uh, in the Supreme Court. But if you think about it, that was a pretty jackbooted approach on the part of the IRS, because first of all, this guy came clean and the IRS said, oh, no, it's times uh, 54 accounts every year. And uh, <clears throat> and we want the whole thing. We want we want the entire hundred thousand dollar fine, because even though the statute says up to one hundred thousand dollars, we don't care that you came clean. We want the whole hundred thousand dollars. So. That's uh, that that that's what happens when uh, you're a citizen in the United States living abroad and unaware of the uh, of the filing requirements that no other citizen of another country living outside that country has to be concerned about. Yeah, um, I think it's worth adding because I don't think this comes through consistently in the dis in the discussion of this is that. For the years that the penalty were was applied, okay, he was not living in the United States. All right, this was not a case of uh, you know this guy coming back to the United States and you know not knowing about you know etc. I mean, it was clearly for the years that uh, you know that, that that he was living outside the United States, and that I think is is of some significance here. Um, I'm not sure from a legal perspective how I would frame that, but it does seem to me to be one more example. Uh, and of course, all his accounts were outside the United States as well, because he was living, you know, it's not like, you know, he had most of his accounts in Texas and he happened to have one or two. I mean, his whole center of financial gravity is outside the United States. So this does seem to me to be one more example of how this collection of laws in effect discriminates against Americans abroad because these were not foreign bank accounts for him really were they they were just you know accounts where he lived and you know he used a phrase out of the internal revenue code presumably where his tax home was uh, you know and sure uh, and uh, he his attorneys uh, in the said that they're estimated to be about 9 million Americans living abroad, a million where uh, you are, John, in Canada, uh, 13 million like uh, Mr. Bittner have returned to the United States. And then we have uh, 45 million uh, US residents who were foreign born who might be tagged with something similar. So yes, you're, uh, yeah, to be clear, it's uh, if I live in the United States and I have a foreign bank account, that has to be reported. The penalty for not reporting it now is $10,000. And the IRS can, uh, can and does uh, use these draconian laws as leverage to force settlements. And that's very well, unfortunately, that very often happens. Uh, are they 
Would they be legally correct? Let's see how the Supreme Court decides. But <clears throat> as justice being done, I don't think so. Do you, uh, I mean, what do you, you know, it's interesting because, I, you know, I've seen predictably a good deal of discussion on this online. And, you know, of course, I mean, unless you see this differently, I think I would say that this is not a referendum on FBAR in the Supreme Court. I mean, it's a very narrow issue. Correct. You know, that is whether the, uh, you know, whether the statute, the governing statute in Title 31, what does it actually say, right? You know, in terms of, uh, you know, what, what the penalty base is. So, I mean, I think it's a very important, very important case for Americans abroad, but I think for Americans generally, because, you know, if somebody, you know, some alien came to the United States, well, let's say a non-citizen type of alien, I think that they would have a lot of trouble understanding how something with such extreme consequences can be so unclear in the law, don't you think? Oh, I agree. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that to understand the uh, vast uh, numbers of statutes, revenue rulings, and regulations, you have to employ an accountant and, or an attorney, and very often, uh, you'll have very experienced accounting uh, accountants uh, solving the same problem and coming up with different answers. And that can only happen when you have something like the Internal Revenue Code. And <clears throat> with the fair tax, that's pretty hard to, ha hard to have happen because uh, you calculate 23% uh, of the gross sale and that goes into a trust account. And uh, that's the end of the discussion. Oh, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think I think the fair tax is certainly a lot fairer in application than the existing uh, taxes. But I think where the tax, the fair tax, is really fair is fundamentally in that people can understand what the damn thing means. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think, uh, at least from my perspective, is is actually the, the the most important consideration here because you just can't have a country, a civilization, a world that is so driven by, you know, what really is the original sin of wanting to impose tax on economic activity that takes place outside your own country. I mean, that's really, you know, I, I think what it comes down to, and it's extraordinary. But I do think that the fair tax, as proposed by fairtax.org, Jim Bennett, Steve Hayes, et cetera, is a massive, massive move in the right direction towards remedying these clear wrongs. And also, I think a massive, massive and important investment, I think, I think in the future of the United States. Because as this stands now, the weaponization of this, I mean, the Supreme Court of the United States, those finite resources being used to decide whether a penalty for not reporting a foreign bank account applies to the form or the number of accounts, I think speaks volumes about the degree to which, you know, taxes, forms, and penalties have basically taken over U.S. culture and held it hostage, right, to a system that can be weaponized so easily. I mean, I don't think that, you know, I don't think the IRS ought to have this kind of discretion. Sure. And I, I think uh, I think they very often uh, abuse their discretion 
uh, when, <clears throat> when when they take these extreme positions and uh, and they they have the power to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to force compromises that uh, people shouldn't have to enter into. And I think I, I, the problem is that you have um, uh, the highly educated people that come out of universities and uh, going into uh, law firms and accounting firms that deal with the tax code. So just think of the resources that could be freed up if, let's say, uh, you had a um, uh, you had one of the big four accounting firms, and probably half their staff uh, works on the tax code. And if instead they could be helping their clients grow their businesses in a way that uh, makes a lot of sense, uh, that would be that that would be a, a huge boost for the economy. And if uh, people invest. Uh, for economic reasons and not for tax reasons, uh, just think of what that would do to the economy. Well, and I think that's absolutely right. But I think your point on, you know, being such a waste of, you know, exceptional brain power. A few years ago, uh, Toronto, probably where I live, probably has about the best sort of collection of, you know, U.S. tax guys outside the United States. Um. And I was out for, for dinner with one of them and, you know, he's at the end of his career and, you know, he's done this for like 40 years and, you know, was, we were talking about it a bit. And he said to me, you know, John, can you imagine what all these people with all this brain power could have accomplished with their lives, could have contributed to society as a whole if they put their energy into those goals rather than helping people comply with this, these tax codes? That's what he said to me, you know, at the end of his, you know, what a 40 plus year career. And this is coming from, you know, one of the, one of the best, one of the best at this sort of stuff I know. Exactly. One of the members of our board at Fairtax is a partner at Price Waterhouse. He's not on the tax side, but uh, he'll be the first to say that uh, he's, uh, he's, I think he's much happier helping his clients uh, grow businesses. And some of the people I know that are some of the most avid supporters of the fair tax are accountants. I know one uh, in a town that's near me uh, who, when I ask him to uh, come to something or uh, volunteer to do something that helps get the word out, uh, he readily responds uh, because a lot of his practice is taxation, but uh, he does think that it's a waste of resources. So <clears throat> if you can get uh, yeah, so I, I think so if you if you can uh, uh, end up a lot of tax and the uh, a lot of tax attorneys and tax accountants uh, have transferable skills. And if you were to bring in the fair tax and suddenly 99 percent of their practice becomes obsolete, they have the skills that would be able to uh, give them uh, work in other Oh, I, I think they can figure it out. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, transitioning the fair tax should include a, a five-year grandfathering position, you know, for for all the tax professionals to find new work or something like that. You know, so, sort of like the uh, the COVID nineteen relief payments, the uh, relief payments for tax professionals who are no longer needed because of the fair <laughs> tax or something like that. That would be good. Well, this is always Jim. I thank you very much for this conversation. Uh, you know, this is great stuff, great stuff. And I thank you even more 
for your relentless uh, work and and getting the word out on this because you know you are, are really doing some good. I mean, I know you think that you're just doing good work on the tax side, but believe me, by you know freeing people up to live productive lives if the fair tax were enacted is you know is really I think a great gift to civilization as it is now evolved. So I thank you for that. Uh, to be clear for listeners, okay, uh, if you haven't got this, uh, if the fair tax were enacted, that would be the end of all the problems for Americans abroad. You wouldn't be forced to renounce your citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. So this is definitely worth understanding and, and supporting. And uh, Jim, in closing, uh, could you lay out the coordinates where people can go to learn more about the fair tax and you and Steve Hayes and all those good people? Sure. Uh, we have a website. It's www.fairtax.org. Uh, and if you like what you see and if you like what you heard today, I encourage you to scroll down on the main page to uh, get information. We do not sell the list, so you will not get spam. And uh, we and, and we, we hope that uh, you can, uh, we, we will help you to find a way to get involved in some productive way even if you're living outside the United States. And John, I thank you again for having me on the program and uh, for the contribution that your program is making to help spread the fair tax word. Oh, all my pleasure. And it, and it has truly been a pleasure. And also I might add for those on Twitter, um, Twitter handle is I believe fair tax official is yes. at fair tax official would be for the organization as a whole. And if you want to listen to the podcasts and videos, the Twitter handle, I think on that is Fair Tax Guys, right? Yes. Fair, yes, fair, fairtaxguys.org. And uh, we are on a few other social media. We have a Facebook page if you'd like to uh, go and have a look at that. All right. Great stuff. Well, thank you again. And I'm sure we'll continue this discussion periodically. Thank you, John.